Welcome to the Two Steps Forward podcast. This is where we have hard conversations about social justice, the kind of conversations that most people don't want but need to have. Join me as I moderate a panel of four everyday people having hard and honest discussions about social justice issues in today's America. The things no one wants to talk about or hear, we will. Raw, real, and uncut, this is the Two Steps Forward podcast, and I'm your host, Ron Classic. Can't have change until we take those first two steps forward. This is episode one. Racism in today's America. I'd like to thank y'all for joining me for the inaugural episode of the Two Steps Forward podcast. You know, it's about time. Thank you. It's about time we have a podcast that's for us, by us, that's not sponsored by FUBU. I just want to say that off top. (laughs) We We need accurate voices that represent the people of this country, the real people of this country. Not Oprah doing her little show that's like this with all her little rich friends that have that are out of touch, not Megan Rapino or Rapino or whatever her name is having, you know, her little rich friends on her show because they're so far out of touch. We're real motherfuckers who are really in the shit, who really deal with this shit every day. So these are the voices not, that need to be heard, not these rich people who have their clout, their fame, and their power. Fuck them because they're out of touch. We yeah. the real motherfuckers right here. <laughs> We're really in the trenches. So... I'm going to introduce our panel, starting with D. Avian. Tell us a little something about yourself. Well, I'm a half Puerto Rican, half Ecuadorian queer, trying to live through this life, oh, being female as well. Um, I work in the corporate field most of, you know, for most of my uh, career choices. And um, for the most part, man, I consider myself um, not a Republican, not a Democrat, right in the middle. Right now, there's nothing really representing me out there, but I also know what is at risk if one or the other wins. So... I mean, I'm overall just trying to get through with the, as as little uh, damage as I possibly can, considering where we have been and where we're going right now. Because um, it wasn't easy oh. 20 years ago. It wasn't. It got a little easier 10 years ago, and then yeah. what the hell just happened now? So. Yeah. <laughs> True indeed. Thank you. Next up on our panel is the lovely Megan Rosari. Tell us something about you. Uh, so I am a black and white woman living in America. I um, work in labor. I am a union organizer, and I love what I do, but I am also a black woman who has lived my life. So there's that. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. yeah. Everybody always ignores the white half, just like they did with Obama. <laughs> you ain't forgot that. <laughs> and last yeah. but not certainly least, my boy Chad and Francis. Tell us something about you, brother. How's it going there? Well, what about me? Uh, black, Native American, Puerto Rican. Um, second generation off the reservation. So very traditional, somewhat conservative values. Um, I mean, it's kind of weird hearing Native Americans say that, but yeah. Uh, past 20 years, been basically working in the hospitality industry. So uh, basically... Yeah, uh, I said I got in touch with a lot of people from different walks of life. Uh, whether it be people that you know, like, look at it this way: I'm the type of guy I can sit there and have lunch with a millionaire and dinner with a bum. So that's me. That's me in a nutshell. <laughs> Indeed. So just before we get into it, the topic for today's discussion is racism in today's America, which I feel like we got the right panel to light that shit up. 
you know, <laughs> you know, the subtopics are weaponizing racism because we know people love doing that in this country. You know, using minorities to silence the movement. Hashtag fuck the Hodge twins. Uh, and why people are so quick to dismiss racism. Because, you know, our president says there's no such thing as systemic racism. Yeah, so, you know, let's get into it. You know, how do y'all feel about the climate of racism in today's America? Thank you for doing this, by the way, because not for nothing, man. There's things that need to be said. (laughs) Oh, 100%. So, I mean, this is, that's what this is all about, you know. I'm trying to make sure, you know, we have a voice that the people who have a hard time talking about race and racism, you know, can hear what the people who experience it the most feel like, what our voices need to be heard. We have a platform, you know. So today's topics are weaponizing racism, using minority voices to silence the movement, and why people are so quick to dismiss racism. Correct. Fucking racist. <laughs> exactly. Well said. <laughs> exactly. It's okay. They didn't know. They didn't know. Mm, yeah. Yeah. They knew. They knew. They're just willfully ignorant. Um, yes, definitely. You know, that, that's that been the motto of 2020, being willfully ignorant. Ugh. Fucking, that's the real virus. 100%. It's just as prevalent as it was in the 1900s. The only difference is we have automotives instead of freaking, you know, horses in the street. But it hasn't gone anywhere. The only thing is media and the internet has allowed it to be more, probably, you know, we can see it. We see it live. We see it happening. Like, it's not gotten more. It's just become more apparent. And I think that a lot of people in denial, in denial because of what happens to them. It's real, and that's where privilege comes in. But then again, that's a myth, apparently. So what do I know? <laughs> hey, listen, we're all minorities. We all know something about it. You know, I wanted to have some white people on this panel, but, uh, excuse me, a few of them bitched out last minute, and that's fine. I'm not mad about that. That's that's just an admission of not wanting to be called out for what they really are, and I respect it. You know, I respect the move. Chicken shit, yes, but I still respect it, because they had enough goddamn sense to not put themselves in the frying pan. You know, Meg, what do you think about this whole state of racism in today's America? So I think it's not just today's America, right? Like I work with elders. That's part of my job. And I hear some of the most heartbreaking, just painful stories from not just the people I work with, but elders of the black community, right? When you sit and you spend time with leaders who've been doing this for, you know, and I'm talking this like civil rights work. Like these are people that I've been privileged to meet along the way because of my position of, of, work, right? Like what I do for a living allows me some FaceTime with some folks I would never normally have met. But what I see in that is that we have not come as far as this generation thinks we had come, that we as black and brown people know that, but white people are just waking up now 
and still very fucking confused about who the leaders are and who the followers need to be on this, right? So they're trying, and I give them credit, and I, I cringe a little when you're like, yeah, I understand. I, like, I don't have the conversation. It's hard. It's ugly. It's painful. But if, if I'm willing to put the emotional labor into it, then why aren't you? Mm. You know, and that's and that's part of the reason for this podcast, because, you know, a lot of what I found, you know, being on social media and having the presence I have, you know, the presence we all have, you know, a lot of white people are scared to have this discussion because they don't rightly know how to approach it, because either they're intimidated by us, you know, they don't understand us or don't want to understand us. You know, it's it's a slippery slope. And, you know, the white people I have talked about it. They're legitimately embarrassed by the state of affairs. They're embarrassed about the wealth of knowledge in our communities that they had no idea about. They're embarrassed that they didn't know as much about our history and our plight and, you know, our trials and tribulations before, you know, you know, your Philando Castiles, your, you know, your Breonna Taylor's, your George Floyd's, you know, when Eric Garner was killed, you know, I got the consensus that a lot of white people thought that was cute. That was funny, you know, not funny in the sense that it was a joke, but it was just like, oh, they're glorifying it for the media. And then it kept happening and kept happening and kept happening. And yeah, the media sensationalized it because that's what the media does. But we live in the information age, you know, that like this was a secret that, you know, minorities are getting killed, you know, by police for, I don't know, since the dawn of time. But, Chad, let us get your thoughts on racism in today's America. Well, all right. My, my thoughts on racism in today's America. My thing is, is that uh, a lot of the white people you talk to are not aware of the timeline. They're not they're not on our timeline. True. Um, you know, like. They'll, they'll never understand the, the okay, like, yes, okay, our generation's not a slave, previous generation's not a slave. Previous generation for that may have been a slave, but they were free. But they don't understand that there's that 250 to 300 year gap that everybody got to prosper because of the color of their skin, while others got a chance to be placed because of the color of their skin. You know, you look at the Native Americans, look at the blacks. Blacks are predominantly in projects, Native Americans are on reservations. Why is that? You know, why Why seclude, even though, even, even though we're not segregated, but still why have it almost segregated to the point where it's e- um, economically friendly for these people to have them put in those little doldrums? You know, uh, I come from sides of both, we're both sides of the family, you can say generational-wise, have been marginalized. And um, I, don't think, I don't think they get that. And uh, once you kind of explain it to them, they... Some people will kind of come around, but then most people still look at it like, uh, I still didn't do it. You know, like no matter what, you know, it's not going to be their, it's not going to be their fight. It's not going to be their argument. Um, but it's funny if you talk to our peers, children, they're the ones trying to pick up, pick up the, pick up the plight. But the problem is, is that, uh, even them, they're still not as educated as they need to be to do the fight. Um, and the problem is, I think, um, we got soft. Um, all in all, like the country itself, nobody nobody stands by a hard line any longer. Mm-hmm. And if you stand by hard lines, you're made to look as a made to look as a fanatic. Whether you're a Trumper, whether you're a Biden, you know, like you're still gonna be looked at as in like you are a fanatic of either one. 
because uh, when you dig when you dig in deeper, like people that are just like you know vote blue, vote blue, vote blue, vote blue. It's like, yeah, but do you see some of the things that some of these people have done, or some of these things that people have been in power for such a long time? Because like if you if you really look at the cities like Chicago, like the cities in California, the cities in Florida, like you know like these have been places that have been long run by Democrats. Not to say there's anything wrong with Democrats, but if these cities have been run by basically generations by the same kind of regime and they're still having these issues, um, I don't think blue is always the answer. But also, the red isn't always isn't always the answer either. But we we can't we can't we can't seem to differentiate the two because we can't seem to be the type of people that understand that yes, right wing, left wing, still the same dirty pigeon. It's all fucked. But that's the thing. Yeah. It's all fucked. A revolution has to come. And they've been telling us, our elders have been telling us that for generations. So then you have these people that are like, well, how do we do it? Well, the answer is organize. Whether it's labor organizing, community organizing, whether it's your church, it's looking at the map of people that you have connection to and talking to them about how they come up against this, right? It's not about the politicians. It's not about which... which like political party you happen to believe in it's about people and people have more in common than they have separating them so those folks on the reservation versus those folks that grew up in the projects it's all about division it's a tactic and it's been successfully used in this country forever the more we separate each other from each other the better off the oppressor is dividing scares people but that's the language that needs to be used understood but if you go to my reservation my reservation is not you now you'd figure we'd be heavy for biden right quite the opposite of all the people on the reservation there's probably like seven people going for biden um because 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 lo and behold trump has actually done some things for the native american community um those are things like like there are a lot of things that trump does that never gets brought to light because it's not it's it's not him just coming out of his mouth like an idiot you know, like there's a lot of things that he has passed and he has done and is continuing to do to try to help, but he doesn't go about it the right way publicly. Regardless of you know, that. Like he's not like, I mean, like, cause like, cause like, cause like think of it, like we, we would like to have somebody there that seems like they're presidential, right? Somebody that's there that's going to seem like, you know, they're going to be one for one and everyone. Um, but we have to also understand that we're we're dealing with something that's dealt with on a voting level, you know. So like when we're so when we're dealing with something that's on a vote, you're going to you're going to bend over backwards for your constituents, you know. Which is the reason why Trump is now looking into doing that whole thing with Ice Cube, with you know, like trying to actually hammer out what they call the Platinum Plan, um, you know. <laughs> at the end of the day, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah exactly, you know, you know, exactly. it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that, Chad, because after I got off the phone with you earlier, you know, I spent about a solid half hour doing my due diligence on that. And there was an interesting interview on CNN from the other night with Ice Cube and Chris Cuomo. I don't know if you watch Chris Cuomo's show, but his show's the yeah, truth. Yeah, I do sometimes. sometimes. Yeah, his show's the truth. You know, and Ice Cube got to speak his piece, and Ice Cube said in plain English, I'm not for red, I'm not for blue. Both sides are messed up, and I approach both sides. It just so happened that Biden's camp said – they want to talk about it after the election if he gets elected. And Trump's side was like, let's talk about it now. You know, so 
you know, that's how that all came about. You know, Cube said it out of his mouth. He wants to work with whoever wants to work with him, whether it's red or blue. And that's not how this works. No, that's not how this works. That's absolutely not how it works. That that, that's a strategic political move, right? That the oppressor's way of saying, here, if I give you this chocolate and candy and walk down and maybe give you a pizza party or or I don't know, a circus, you'll ignore the fact that I'm about to fuck you hard. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Absolutely. You know, I mean whole thing is whole thing is that if you're a child with your hand out and uh somebody happens to give you a snicker bar or the other person saying, Hey, hold on, wait till, wait till after Halloween and I'll, and I'll give you a bigger candy bar because it's on sale then, you know, like, no, it's, it's, uh, what's I was saying? Um, uh, well, never mind. But, um, for the most part, you have to look at it as in, we're going to deal with what's going to be put in front of us. Now we're not going to deal with hypotheticals going to be put in front of us possibly after the election, after we possibly give him our vote. That's going to swing something. Well, you kind of have Trump. He's, he's going he's to take the bull by the horns because he realizes this is kind of his political life or death. It's done. You know, so Biden needs to be on his shit and he needs to actually be like, you know what? Let's get ahead of this now. This, so this is no longer, like to me, this is no longer about Biden or Trump, right? This is about what we do going forward. And when you look at how racism is used in this setting, it tells you, it gives you a gauge of how much we need to do to be able to get through this next couple of years to actually topple this system, right? A system does not, a system of oppression does not get toppled overnight. Over the course of a period of time and a lot of fucking work. Well, we're not gonna topple a system that's so adamant it's it's staying in a two-party system. Like, we get vilified if we try to vote for a third party. Someone like me, you know what? I almost don't want to vote because we're not even voting for a president. We're voting for the people behind the scenes. Case in point, the Supreme Court. You know, depending on who gets in as a president is who's going to get into there. So we're not really voting for a president. We're voting for everything behind it. And then we have candidates that no one talks well about, regardless of what side you're on. You have something ill to say about Biden. You have something ill to say about Trump. How am I supposed to feel good about my choice and then my vote count? How? Like this, I've been able to vote for half of my life at this point, And I have to say, this has been the most divisive um, election that I have ever experienced. Like just by their simple who you back, they already determine how racist you are or you're going to be. From Bindon saying that if you vote that way, you're not black enough to just, just Trump. <laughs> like... Um, racism, I've never seen it so play out so publicly, especially during like an electoral period. Before it's behind the scenes, we know it happens, we live it, we see it. But it's like literally playing out in droves, like there's actual like parades for this shit. Like, oh, 100%. When did that, but when did that be okay, become okay? You know, like when you know, Trump got elected, that's when it became okay. That's the difference, though. People assume that Trump is the trigger here. He's Trump not. Is not the trigger here. This has been set up since the Voting Rights Act of, what, 1965? Mm-hmm. So if you really want to look at this and say, why do I vote? Well, you vote because all those people before us died to get that vote. You vote because we had to fight that hard to get it. It must be worth something. And that's how the system was set up. It needs to be redone. 
but the system was set up so that if, if it's that hard to do it in any given setting, right, whether it's voting or organizing a union in, work, in your workplace, the goal is if I can keep you down, then I can keep that money in my pocket. I can keep that power in my pocket. The more people know they have rights, the more they exercise those rights, the harder they have to fight to get those rights, the more they're worth. But then, again, but then again, what rights are we talking about? Rights, a constitution that was written by predominantly slave owners and white people? Like, what <laughs> rights are we talking yeah, about? Yeah, and you know what? And I've been saying that this whole time. Like, this, that's a poison pill for this country, you know? This country was founded by old, rich white men who, who created a mission statement for this country called the United States Constitution that starts out with we the people, while women didn't mean shit to them, and black folks were three-fifths of a person. So it's we the people with an asterisk. So we're, the, so, this, we're so far away from the, our actual history. Like, we have to realize Ruby Bridges just turned 65. Ruby Bridges, the first girl to walk into a white school. 65 years old she just turned. That's not too long ago. My mother was born in 1950. Schools were still segregated then. Like people keep saying it's it was in the past. No, it isn't. We have grandparents that lived that experience. 100%. My grandparents certainly Absolutely. did. You know, and people think, "Oh, the civil rights movement was so long ago." That was what? 50 years ago? 55, you know? 60. Yeah, yeah no, that's what I'm saying. So it's just like, no, I mean like we were still niggas and spicks. You know what I'm saying? In squaws, 65 years ago, the only difference is now they say that shit behind closed doors. But now that we're in the technology age and everybody has a platform and everybody can feel comfortable flapping their fucking gums behind the keyboard. Oh, like, oh, like I've heard this new one, like instead of like this, you know, like we do with like, you know, the Indians and call them like sand niggas. Yeah. Um, I just new, I have this new one called Dune Coon. Oh, that's not new. Oh, that's <laughs> well, for me, that's new. Well, right I'm there, like, though, that we're what? comfortable saying those things at that's all. Yeah. That we are comfortable saying those words at all tells us that it's it's okay in some fucked up way, right? We're yeah. talking about these things. Be, like Those are things that people use to make us feel shitty. 100%. But the thing is, that's also part of how they've imprinted the racism within our own culture. Like, the state of Niger... That's a real place, N-I-G-E-R. You know, and sometimes people will look at that with a disdain without realizing, dude, that's your root. And they've taken your root and they've bastardized it and made it into a thing that's so ugly. And then when we try to own it ourselves, we're considered ghetto or low level for it. But then if somebody else, it's, you know, and I think we'll get into how they've weapon, you know, how we've weaponized, you know, bases and especially against yourself. That's a good example of it. Like that one word that it's literally a region, it's people. You like know, it, it's true and it's taken and it made us feel very uncomfortable with even who we are. Yeah, and that's a good way to segue into this subtopic of weaponizing racism. You know, because you see, you see stuff like that, that chick Amy Cooper that called the cops on that black guy, Chris Cooper, who was bird watching and mm -hmm. said that he's attacking her, this, that, and the third, you know, that type of shit is commonplace. Like, more often than not, like, D, we've known each other a long time. As Meg, Chad, we've known each other for a long time. Growing up where we grew up in Stratford, you know, getting the police called on us because we're of a darker complexion was commonplace. All the time. You know? No, like, I've been, I've been pulled over in my driveway. I've oh. been... Like, I, I remember one time I was coming home from high school with this kid, Ronald Rogers, and uh, freaking uh, 
uh, was it uh, the, um, police officer Bird, the big six eight black guy? Mm-hmm. He stopped me and he's like, he's like, he's trying, he, he tried to tell me, tell me, like, I look like a, I fit the description. I'm like, wait, hold on, what? Come again? Exactly. <laughs> you know, like, the description of what? Like, <laughs> a black man in like, America. <laughs> <laughs> somebody with a backpack. This is somebody with a backpack on. <laughs> you know, like, I'm clearly coming from school. <laughs> you know, and it's like, yeah, there's, like, police just need, oh, goodness, it's not police. Oh, no, police that's a whole nother training. episode. That's a whole nother episode. Oh, yeah, we, gotta, we gotta save that. That's a whole nother episode, because I have one dedicated just for that, talking about cops in that thin blue line. Oh, no, don't you worry. <laughs> but, no, you have oh, a very yeah. valid point, because there is no black and white when it comes to cops. They're all blue. You know, mm-hmm. and... For these people that like to spout that Blue Lives Matter rhetoric, you know, in response to Black Lives Matter, you know, we can't change our... It's not a fucking life. Yeah, it's a sh- not your life. It's a yeah. shitty career choice at you that. It's not a... Choice. You know Fuck what I'm saying? that. You had exactly. a choice and you chose to sit in a position of power where you could have that power over people. You chose a job that is the slave catcher's... That's that's what that is. You know, KRS. Exactly. Yep, KRS one said it best. Overseer to officer. That's all it was. Mm-hmm. You know. You know. I mean, and I feel bad because you know my my stepson wants to be a cop, and I was talking to him yesterday. You know, and he wants to be the kind of cop that kicks indoors, and I'm just like, that's the wrong mentality. You get into civil service to help people, not to fulfill some sort of you know. 80s action movie fantasy, you know. But I have this, yeah, I have this saying. You, you know that kid who got picked on all the time in school? He's a cop. That white kid that got beat up by a bunch of black kids? He's a cop. That black kid that got teased by a bunch of white kids for being the only black guy? He's a cop. That, mm-hmm. that, that guy who had his wife cheat on him? He's a cop. You know, every cop I've ever known or come across, because I'm friends with a few cops, all have some sort of deeply troubling character flaw. You know, I mean, we all... I know, I was going to say, we all do, but at a certain point, it's just like, all right, you got beat up. Go ahead, ahead, Jack. I was about to say, full disclosure, I actually know a detective who randomly shoots people just to get the two months off, pay two months off. Is that a point plate out of his mouth? Wow. Yeah. Because wow. he knows he's going to get his two months paid off and he's going to do his counseling for one day a week and call it, call it a day. Wow. And, yeah. and, and the messed up part about that is the powers that be don't see that because when you think about, you know, a cat like, you know, Christopher Dorner, you know, Chappelle mentioned him in that 846 stand-up he did, you know, how Dorner wanted to do something about all the corruption in the LAPD and, you know, all his superiors turned a blind eye and they, they couldn't turn a blind eye until he started killing these corrupt cops. Yeah. You know, I mean, at a certain point, you know, whether it's the police, whether it's a word, whether it's an action, whether it's someone clutching their purse as you walk by, locking their doors when you pull up next to them, you know, racism is weaponized in many forms. And it's, it's hard to combat something that's so multifaceted. And, you know, how, how do you even begin to, to put yourself on the defensive from, wep- from racism being weaponized? How do you how do you make it go away? How do you stop it? How do you, where's the where's the starting point? You you have to recognize where it's coming from, right? 
So I like I read through an article. There's a quote I pulled, right? And it, this is what it was. It says racism has always been labeling about labeling black bodies as criminal in order to justify over policing and segregation and deprive depriving black people of basic civil rights. Yeah, but you know what though? That's Bottom racism. Line. But you know what though? That's just racism about about toward black people. Let's talk about racism toward I don't know immigrants, Mexicans, Asians. You know. When, but it's the, so it's the same thing, though. It's the same mechanism being used against everyone. And this goes back to what I was saying before, and like in response to Ch Chad, like you have different groups of people experiencing this. It's experiencing the same tactics of oppression and not communicating with each other about that, and not doing anything that actually brings each other together to do the things about that. That's where the problem lies within this country. Of we course. can be mad about police. We can be mad about all the government shit that's not going right. But if we're not willing to go past our comfort zone to talk to our neighbors about the shit that, that, that's going on, nothing changes. And it continues to not change, right? Voting is just the first step. It's a test. Any organizing campaign, we're going to test it out, see if it works before we go full force, right? If people can't get off their asses to vote in this, then we're fucked. Revolution is going to be real fucking hard and painful and slow for those of us that got to be out there. 100%. Well, I think one way to attack racism, actually, it has to start from within. Because we're used to being attacked from the outside. The white girl looking at me. But when it's like my own, and I feel like this is where racism has been so weaponized that we are self-destructive to ourselves, that we can't even think better of ourselves. The fact that I speak without an accent, I speak white. The fact that I have an intelligent tone to me, that's, uh, that's assigned to be a Caucasian, a Caucasian stereotype. Like, what does that even sound like? Why can't I just be an intelligent Hispanic woman? No, I have to sound like, you know, Becky. And, and that, being, I feel like, is the worst part of how racism has become ingrained in our society, that we look at each other and we co-sign to it just by that simple fact of even how we talk and how our vernacular vocabulary is. That's a basic thing, like, and that's what's very representative of who and how we are, just the way that we talk. But yet, you know, I talk to white for even my own people, you know, but at the same time, if I try to hold my pride and hold my accent and I go out there, I'm automatically a spick or where's my green card? Exactly. You know, because at the end of the day, racism is a system of advantage based on race. You know, it's a hierarchy, you know. It's a pandemic. It's something you can't, we can't escape. It's so deeply embedded in our country's DNA that it's impossible to escape, you know, like. But it's not impossible. It's not impossible. And that's the part where we keep losing hope and get stuck back and sucked back into that complacency, right? How did we get to where we are right now? We got complacent. We got soft, as someone said earlier, right? So how do you come back out of that? You come back out of that by not talking about it, but by doing the work. And that work means talking to everyone about what you're seeing. It means calling it out. It means making white people accountable to calling it out for you when you know you can't, right? You know, I, like, I have no problem arguing with people on the internet, right? Part of that is like, that's a release valve. That is a release valve for me. It's a, it's a training ground, right? I have to deal with all that shit my whole life. So if I can polish it in a way that you might actually receive it, sure, let's go. But, the but there are is, times where that's too much. Yeah, but and the, somebody else has to pick that up. 
But the problem is we shouldn't have to polish it for, for white people to be able to accept it. We shouldn't we have do. to. What we should and shouldn't have to do doesn't matter. We do. That's where we are. So we can't keep complaining about having to do it, right? We have to give each other the solace and ability and space to do that work, right? Because if I don't have a support system that looks and, and feels what I'm feeling, what good, like, I'm just going to burn out. I'm going to be broken and, and, and just done, right? So knowing that I have an, a, a, a threshold of emotional labor I can put into this and that you have the same and that D has the same as that and Chad too, we all have that threshold and it's different for all of us. But if white people don't start recognizing that that threshold needs to be met by them too, get uncomfortable. I don't give a fuck how uncomfortable you are. Do stupid shit. I've done it. But that's exactly it. There needs to be more white-on-white -white accountability. We're the outside looking, and we're the ones, of course, being affected by this. But, you know, it's more, it's time for grandkids to make their grandparents feel uncomfortable for those old beliefs. You know, Thanksgiving shouldn't be as, you know, free-flowing as it, could, as it should be because these are the things that should be talking about. But again, it's easy for them to really sweep under the rug for something that simply isn't happening to them. Like, it's a literal myth or a story. I mean, Santa Claus is more real than racism to some people. And it's insane because, again, they had the excuse, well, it was 50 years ago. I don't see it. It's sensationalized by the news. But it's not, sensa it's not sensationalized to the extent that it's occurring as much as it always has. You know, the Internet just gets it broader. It puts it in our face. And we see it happening from the south to the northeast to the west. It's not just segregated to Bridgeport. And which is the other thing, like, it's always interesting when, you know, someone dies in Bridgeport, then if it happens in Cheshire, you know, you get two different flexes on things. But, you know, continue on. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, we could, we could do this all day, but, you know, I want to move to the next subtopic, yeah. which is using minority voices to silence the movement. <sighs> I think that goes back right, to the again, like our, we, we feed into the stereotypes that they give us. You know, I fucking talk like Becky more than I talk like Lupita. You know, it's like they've ingrained that in us. So we are our own. They, they put weapons in our own culture because they've never allowed us to have the education and the opportunity. Oh, and we want to, and we, you know, and we have this weird flex where we see someone that's actually doing better, going to school, and we'll tear that person down. And it's and that's just a odd ingredient, and that's part of like how they weaponize us from the inside. Oh yeah, it's it's the crabs in the barrel mentality, and you know, we we as people of color never want to see another person of color doing better than us, and that's that's complete and utter bullshit. You know, like we haven't realized that if we stand together, whether you're Hispanic. Black, Native American, you know, Asian, gay, straight, trans, whatever, a woman. Together, we are the majority. And we're not there yet. And But we I, are. We have to be. We don't have a fucking choice. Listen, I, I want to believe that we're there. You know, but, you know, the way things are, let me just put this in perspective. I'm coming from the place where like I said, I talk, I engage white people about this all the time. You guys see me do it on the internet constantly. You know, it's a matter of fear because for all the people that jump on my posts and on my social media saying, oh, Black Lives Matter is racist. They're a Marxist organization. They're this, they're that. 
Well, I'm not talking about no fucking organization. I'm talking about actual black lives. You know what I'm saying? It, we don't need an organization for that. When I see people who get killed on the TV who look like me, who look like y'all, for just for the color of their skin, that's a problem. And white people are scared to speak out against it because they don't want to be labeled as a race traitor or a nigger lover or this, that, and the third by their white peers. You know, it's a matter of fear. And that's why we don't get a lot of white on white accountability, because they're afraid of what the other white people will think instead of standing on the side of right. Well, they're lucky to be able to have that fear instead of the fear of me getting pulled over in the middle of the night and not knowing what the fuck is going to happen. One hundred percent. You know, so and you know, what? even our own like like our popular culture, it doesn't elevate us out of our hood mentality. You look on the TV, look at the music that's available to us, our, icon, our icons for our culture. You know, they feed into it. And I feel like and that's and that to me is the saddest part, especially people in position of power that don't use that to help elevate us out into a better mentality, to better impress upon our young women, our young men to do better. No, if anything, it's more of the old and it continues that cycle. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I don't like when you think of, you know, our icons, you know, who 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 even comes to mind that's, you know, is using their platform to speak for good. You know, Angela oh, Davis, her whole fucking life. 100%. Yo, yes. Right? Like, yes. They they they're out there, right? You have Beyoncé Formation, I did I was not a fan. I was not a fan of Beyonce until another friend of mine was like, You need to listen to this, right? Sit down and listen to it. She's telling us to get our shit together. Exactly. Like, did you see the whole Blackest King yet? Like, no. You should you should watch that. It's you know, as a black man, even though I don't really dig on Beyonce's music like that, but as a black man seeing something that's so powerful, so black, so beautiful, you know, in the mainstream, like like y'all said, we live in a time where we need to unify, we need to solidify, and, you know, at this point, it's do or die. And the fact that we can have our, our blackness, as it were, on display, or our heritage on display, without anyone batting an eyelash is a beautiful thing. But at the same time, it's just regarded as that, entertainment. It's disassociating our heritage from the actual people and putting an entertainment value on it. That, and that's the thing though. What we need to do is think about how are these people, like who and how are these elevated celebrities elevating other and bringing up, lifting up, instead of being letting those crabs in that barrel just sit there, they're lifting people up. You know, Beyonce does not like, and again, I, like, I feel weird even saying it because I, did, I was not a big fan found a place in my heart after some of the things that I've learned about her, right? She, all of, all of her, what was it? Coachella, her entire band, all of that. Historically Black University is where she pulled them from and she put those folks to work. Hundreds and hundreds of Black students to work. Listen. I think it'd be more like her though. Why is she just literally one of maybe two others we can name? Like Yeah, because the only other one I could name is Tyler Perry. Like at first Megan the Stallion. Oh, she's another one. You know Black women. Look at the black women that are doing the things with the money that they've earned by putting themselves out there. My emotional labor is Beyonce putting her body through all the craziness she's put it through after having babies. 
through all the emotional labor of sharing her husband's infidelities. I see myself in her. Other, other women can too, black and white, right? But beyond all of that, you look past it and you look at what they do with their money. Yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of skeletons in everybody's closet. But at the end of the day, those are the things we need to talk about is where, where, are, they, where are they supporting other black women? Where are they supporting other black people? Where are we doing that? Because right now, I don't see us doing that in the ways that we need to to actually overcome. Absolutely. And that's the thing, like we can, I believe we can. I do believe it is all possible. If I didn't, I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to fucking live like I do. <laughs> but the same way that white people need to be able to be more confrontational with themselves and their own, we need to be able to want to elevate ourselves and each other and not look at it as a bad thing or as a dis, you know, or to discourage, like there needs to be more uplifting we need role models like that that we can look at and see what they're doing and how they're serving the community but the unfortunate fact of the matter is we don't the majority isn't that and that is what's damaging especially to our youth that are growing up like our parents grew up with at least civil rights leaders that were still up and coming like once the 90s hit there's been like maybe the last 30 years of MTV role models, unless you really well, are well read into science, like other than that, you turn on the TV, that's what you have as, you know, who you're going to grow up to be. Us growing up, we didn't have that. Like we had to actually look and read and research, you know, we had to actually live life a little bit so that way we can see what's out there. These kids, they turn on the TV and life is right there in front of them. And I'm sorry to say a lot of it is not conducive to what we're discussing and how it should be. It's great that there are those that are, but there's certainly just not enough that are. You, and you got to look in your own backyard though. Connecticut, I can think of three different black women who are leading youth, who are leading a movement there, right? All over the state, networking, all of the things that have to happen. And I am sure that there are more than the three that I know by name. But that are doing that work. Know them by name. You know them by name because you're in that mix. But for the common everyday. Carrie Ellington, right there, right? You, if you're in Connecticut and you don't know Carrie Ellington's name, Google her. Google them, right? Black Lives Matter, New Haven. Lauren Essence, right there. Orisha, Orisha. I'm probably saying her fucking name wrong because I'm terrible, right? But like these are people who are doing the work, have been doing the work, have been supporting the youth as they do the work in the state of Connecticut long before I came along and started doing work in Connecticut. While I was sitting in a desk wondering how I was gonna keep food on my table and deal with the fucking shit I had going on at home, they were already doing stuff, right? I'm five years into the labor movement and have had the fortune and opportunity to meet these people, but you should know who they are. You live there. I don't even live there, I keep following them, right? You got Justin Farmer in uh, Hamden, local leader. Those are civil rights leaders. Those are not just people who are doing a thing in a, in a bubble, right? And Those I are agree. the civil rights leaders of today. And I agree, but the, real, but the real reality of it is how many people actually know that. Actually, like we do because this is what we, you know, we look into, we care. But I can go, I live in the, like a condo complex. There's probably about a thousand people here. If I was to knock on the door and ask, give me the names of three 
people, even within your state or in the U.S., that are your role models that you feel elevated by or that you know are doing good by you, you're not going to get those names. And that's unfortunate. So how do we bring those to the forefront instead of all the rest of this erroneous stuff that everyone likes to point out? Because how many times have we heard about the Black-on-Black violence? How about that? You know, (laughs) how do we take away from that to what's really happening, the good? But again, you know, anytime something bad happens, that's the first thing to stick to memory versus the good that we've done, you know? So I think we have to figure out a way to get the focal point to those people, to those things that are happening, because the truth of the matter, it's not. Everything that we're, I mean, these people that don't believe that racism is happening have enough ammunition on all the negative things, but they don't, but we don't have enough ammunition on the positive things on ourselves to put back to them. And I see it all the time, even with the Facebook arguments, people that are on our side, they can't even explain their side because they don't even have the education to put that point out there. Why is that though? What's going on that we're not getting those connections? Because more people should know about that. People should be put on. But I'm telling you, they're not though. But here's why. We live in a world where everything is based off of social media. Word of mouth is how this stuff, how movements are actually built. Movements are not built through emails and fucking social media. Movements are built by connections and networking, right? Y'all know I care about this shit. You reached out to me. I said, yes, I've been excited about it for fucking months. Why? Because I'm stuck in a city I don't know that well. And I want to do something that matters in the middle of all of this, right? And I can't be out there protesting every day because I got a job to do that I want to do. You know, I want to be here tomorrow to do. I have an autoimmune. I don't know how this shit's going to fucking play out with that. I am a black woman. I have had doctors not fucking take me seriously. I am not trying to play with this, right? So this mattered to me because of that. But if we don't start talking about why we're vulnerable and what makes us vulnerable in this moment in a real honest way with people we know and don't know, then that's, it's lost. It's lost there because me being vulnerable on social media any asshole can take a screenshot of it. We know that because I do that shit all the time, mm-hmm. right? But like any asshole can do that. So I can, I have no problem sharing something about myself that's important and real, right? But I also have to think about my career. I have to think, which in the world I work in right now, I'm respected. I'm treated with dignity and respect. So I don't worry about that as much. But in the world I worked in before, something as simple as me saying this bitch at work just called me a whatever could get me fired. Yeah. Mm. So that's not the case anymore. I am fortunate for that. But any th- any type of little, I don't like this, or I'm at work, a selfie at work, Black Lives Matter, that could get me fired in an at-will world, right? So mm-hmm. we don't get to talk about this stuff at our workplaces and all these other places because it's uncomfortable and because we're afraid. Absolutely. We don't get to be afraid anymore if we have those conversations with each other in places where we're comfortable, right? Yeah. I wear, so I, I'll, I, we do door knocks for work, right? I knock on doors normally. In a normal world, I would be out somewhere campaigning, knocking doors. I wear the most comfortable shoes I ever can find for every interview I take in my world right now. Because if you're looking at my shoes, then you're not listening to me. We're not talking to each other. You're not hearing me. Cause you're too busy looking at my fucking shoes in the first place. Yep. True story. Other piece of that is if I got to be uncomfortable, I'm going to be as comfortable as I can being uncomfortable because that's my job is to get comfortable being uncomfortable with people who are uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> that, like, yes. 
And whether it's about race or joining a union or, or doing anything that empowers a person, when you're trying to get somebody to stand up against something that's so painful for them, you got to find out why, get their story. Why? Why does this matter to you? Why does it matter to you that my black life could get shot any day at any moment for any fucking reason by a literal police officer? Why does that matter to you? Well, it might not, unless you care about me. Yeah. It might not, unless you need me, right? Employers, why do employers care about that? If we had a general strike over this shit, do you think that employers would not recognize how much they need black people? Yeah. Chad, you work at a restaurant. Do they need you? I think Chad uh, had technical difficulties. But, you know what I mean? Like, they need us. We don't need them unless we are unwilling to come together and take care of each other through whatever has to happen. But that's the key. We need to step up and take care of each other, but we're already against each other on so many smaller levels. I said the, the enemy sometimes is from within, not so much from the outside. I mean, that's definitely a huge thing of what's going on. But I feel like a lot of, um, especially with handling racism, we got to deal with it from the inside, from our own kitchen tables to our own group of friends. Like we really got to have accountability out there. And especially the white on white accountability needs to happen, but it definitely needs to happen within ourselves because we shouldn't depreciate someone because they speak a little bit better or they decide to come up out of a thing. Like that should be honored and awarded, but we don't do that because they've beaten us so down that we feel that when we grow up in the projects, that's the way it's supposed to be. No, honey, we're supposed to have the opportunity. At, you know, we are what, five, four generations low you know missing of opportunity because you know, we grew up from where we had to or what they allowed us to put us in our little blockades in our little area and we become comfortable with that after generation after generation and we need to learn to actually break out of that and elevate ourselves more but definitely it's from within i feel for a lot of that stuff the thing, like the within part it comes from that con those conversations yeah that have like my father does not understand, and y'all know who my father is and, and all that, right? Oh, yeah. so, <laughs> so he does not understand why his children didn't have it better because he thought it was just going to be better for us, right? Yeah. Does that mean that, like, my life was mean? No, my life is good. I'm, I am successful. I can say that. I have successfully overcome some of the shit that my childhood gave me to deal with, right? But at the end of the day, I don't forget where I came from. And I look mm -hmm. at that and I think about, okay, like, who, who is, who is going to lift me up when I'm down? Who is going to pick me up? How many couches have I surfed in my life to get where I am? All of them. <laughs> so there's, there's no, there's no magic thing that's going to fucking fix it. It's me calling all those people whose couches I've slept on and saying, Hey, I need you to fucking give a fuck about this thing that's happening. It's that important. Like if we're never going to talk again, this is going to be the reason why. But we live like, in a world that giving a fuck is normal. I mean, look at the whole mask thing. I mean, the majority of that is mostly a common courtesy for the person next to you, regardless of what you really think about what's going on. And you get, you know, and you get these assholes out here that are literally just not caring. And that's normal. And that's okay. And they make that and then that just spreads like wildfire. So it's hard to make people want to care in a climate that's so okay with not caring. So here, but here, like the same tools that you use 
to overcome that in a workplace are the same fucking tools you use to overcome that anywhere else. So it's apathy, right? That's yep. fear, division, confusion, mm -hmm. futility. That's it. Those four things. How do you overcome that? Education, networking, building people up. You do not overcome that apathy by shying away from it, Absolutely. which is what people want to do, right? Even those of us that know what needs to be done want to do that at times with this because it is that hard to do. True story. Yeah. So, you know, let's move on to the next topic because there's just been so much gold, so much heat in this, and I can't thank you ladies enough for being a part of this. Right. Well, thank you for initiating the conversation. It needs to be had, you know. Uh, it, it damn sure does. And, you know, there's so many conversations that need to be had. So, I mean, for our final subtopic today, we can talk about why people are so quick to dismiss racism. That's, that's, for me, that's a huge problem. You know, huge. a lot of people, a lot of people be like, oh, you have it so much better because you're black. You get, you get, the government does this for you. You get on state. Ba, 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 ba. I'm like, for real? That that's 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 the perk of being black. You know, that's the perk of being a minority in this country. That's the perk of being, you know, a few generations removed from slavery. We get government assistance. Yep. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. People can't be racist against me because I went to Catholic school, right? <laughs> I've been surrounded by white people. People can't be. Nobody was <laughs> racist to you. Nothing about that was racist. <laughs> Like, not at all. <laughs> the reason I went to Catholic school is because I had a teacher tell me that my parents didn't have me. Right? So, like, that's how wait, I wait, started. Wait, 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 Rewind that back. Say that <laughs> statement again. That, that, that deserves a rewind. Let's, let's say that again, please. The story I was told is that I had a teacher tell me that my parents should not have had me. That's how I ended up in Catholic school. I did not end up in Catholic school because we were fucking rich. I ended up in Catholic school because my grandmother was not having it. Oof. Yeah. A teacher in public school said this to you. Yes. A legitimate educator. You know, and it's funny. because, And let me guess, that was in Stratford too, wasn't it? Yes. You know, you and it's funny. It. It's funny. <laughs> this ain't going to turn into a fuck Stratford, Connecticut podcast, but hashtag fuck no. Stratford, Connecticut. No, but, I, like, but I want you to understand the dynamics here, though, too, because I was fortunate to have a grandmother who had the access to the Stratford public school system and knew this person well enough to know and knew what was going on well enough to know how it should have been handled versus however it was. I don't know the details of it. I know I got pulled from one school and went to the next one the next year. Listen, I have a similar story because, you know, I went to Wilcoxon for kindergarten and first grade and second grade. And, you know, the press, the, the principal there, Sandra Michaelides, God rest her soul in hell. Um, you know, <laughs> she saw fit to take all the minority students, even though we were scattered around Stratford and put us on our own bus. She didn't want us bus with all the pretty little white kids. You know, and then those of us that were black in these schools were forced to sit in the back of the class away, segregated away from the class. Now, keep in mind, this was the fucking 80s. This wasn't the, this wasn't the 50s. This wasn't the 40s. This wasn't the 60s. This was the 1980s, the mid 80s at that. Within your lifetime. Exactly. Listen, Shepard is the perfect example of division. Listen, it has the south end and the north end. 
Look at Stratford High and look at Bunnell. Don't tell me that they don't put us where we're supposed to be close to the border of Bridgeport versus where they are on the north end. Yeah, okay? but, you know. They, so a lot of towns do that. But, and you we, know, though, my little cousin. Redlining. Yeah, my that's, little cousin, she went to, you know, she lived in the north end, as it were, but it was pretty much East Main Street in Stratford, down the street from Stop and Shop, you know. They did something the race. They were trying to racially balance the schools because the Stratford yep. Board of Ed saw that there was a problem. So instead of her going to Wilcoxon, she went to Stratford Academy, which is on the complete opposite side of town. You yep. know, and then for for middle school, she ended up going to Flood because they needed more brown faces there, and she ended up going to Bunnell for high school because again needed more brown faces there. That's how yeah. I got switched out from Stratford High to Bunnell simply because I was just the right demographic that they were looking to fill in there. And, you know, and, and me growing up as a developing female, like I have enough insecurities as it is from just my appearances and who I am. And then I know that I get put into a school with no, nothing to do with my merit, nothing to do with my intelligence, everything to do that I'm filling their skin color quota. And that's, and I grow, and I, that's me growing up into what's going to be a history of that same thing. I mean, listen, affirmative action. I get it. We need to be able to, you know, diversify things. But when you use it simply as a tool for diversity and not actually using people's merits and, you know, you know, earn it a little bit, it just really makes us feel worse than what we need to in a lot of ways, you know? But that's the fucking point. That's the whole point. The oppressor is not stupid. And when I say the oppressor, I mean the powers that be, the people that make those decisions, they are not stupid. They know that that's going to be the result. Yep. It takes us years to fucking catch up with the fact that that's the game. Yep. Oh yeah. But like, and that's unfortunate. Like, I want to. I want to bring it back though, because it's like you're asking why. Are, why are we so quick to dismiss racism? Because it's normalized. You're. I'm listening to you guys talk about the Stratford school system. Now, I was not back in the Stratford school system until high school. It took two years, three years maybe, before I realized what they were doing. I was my mother's child when they needed white students, and I was my father's child when they needed black students. Yep. I was the fucking golden goose of quotas. Yep. So and then we're supposed to grow like, up and be comfortable with our skin when they already ingrained that into us before the age of 18. Yeah, and when... And that, that's the thing. For so many people, it's ingrained. It's, it's, a, it's a slower thing, right? Mm -hmm. For me, are you stolen? Are you adopted? Did this happen? Did that happen? Where's your parents? I don't see your parents. They're right there. No, that's not your mom. No, she's right there. That's her, right? You're not black enough to understand this. You're not white enough to understand that. Yeah. Lordship Fathers Club, we were kids. This is down by the, the beach down in Lordship. My grandfather is, was, me, was a member of the Fathers Club. He's a Trump voter and we don't speak no more, but that's a different story for a different day. But this man brought his grandchildren to an event that was open to all of the, the grandchildren of all of the fathers in Lordship. Lordship. Just laying that out there, right? Uh. This, like, they told us we couldn't stay. We were not welcome. Those are the stories I've heard of my childhood. Now, I don't remember all of that. But they've been passed to me to make sure that I know that these things happen. But I'm supposed to walk into my grandfather's whatever situation I have to walk into with him and be like, yeah, this is okay. You still don't understand that I'm black. I still don't understand why you're such a racist asshole. That's my life. That's real since birth. This man has not accepted me as a black woman as his granddaughter. How do I expect anybody else to? Yeah, mm. absolutely. Mm. 
And that's what makes it aggravating when people say it's not happening or it's in the past or it's history. That's our history. It's our past, you know, and I'm going to be 40 next year. It's not a long past. <laughs> like it's, and like as we discussed before, 65 years old, Miss Ruby is 65 years old. So that she was probably then less than 50 years ago that she tried to walk into a school, an all white school, a little girl trying to walk. That isn't too long ago. That really 1970. Not too long ago at all. You know, so when people say it's the past or, you know, we should get over it. It's hard for me to get over something that has been in my face and has been ingrained in me since childhood. You know, like you may not remember, but that subconsciously that's there. You had a feeling about something and, you know, it's it's rooted in you. And how do you just ignore that? Well, you know? here, well, here's my hot take on it. White people have the luxury to ignore racism while the rest of us people of color don't. Yeah. And that's and that's the thing when you when you're when you're in those situations, it depends on who's with you. Right. Like I have people I am surrounded. Like, I work with a lot of white dudes who, who care and try. Right. Yeah. They understand and recognize their privilege and they are, are really, really trying. They're not always going to get it right. They know that. And I know that. And that makes it easier for us to work together on some shit. Right. But like when it comes down to it, they're willing to learn. So I can say in a meeting, if somebody's saying something that I want, like, I know I need to say, I can say, Hey, can I get an assist on this? Right. Because I know that that's the extra that I have to go to be able to be heard in that setting. Now, either they're going to hear me when I say it, or they're going to hear him when he says it. Do I give a fuck if it's my idea or his idea? No, if it's a good idea, it's a good idea. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> but for me, I have to let go of all of the resentment I carry for the fact that those are the moves I have to make to make stuff happen. Whether it's a personal, community, like professional organizing situation, any of that, right? Whether it's me going to the grocery store to pick up fucking bread. I have to know what I'm walking into and whether or not it's, is this a moment to speak up or do I just fucking keep my mouth shut and keep it moving? Yeah. Like, if I keep it moving, who, who am I leaving in my wake? True. Who's not getting, if that man or, or woman doesn't get checked in that moment, who's, who's after me? Who are they hurting next? Because yeah. I may have more privilege in that space than somebody else right? Ron, yeah. you are darker than I am. If we're both sitting in some space together, who's going to say something? Me. Why? Because that's my responsibility as the lighter skinned privileged person in that situation. Point blank, whether I like it or not. I can't sit in those situations with a white person and say, I'm going to say the same thing because I know that sometimes I'm not going to because my safety comes first. So Megan, I'm very curious to know your take on this. So what do you say to someone that says that there's no such thing as white privilege? You're full of shit. Oh, no. See? <laughs> yeah, y'all trying to give away spoilers for, for the next episode. Yeah, yeah, y'all trying to get into that already. All right. But, but I'm here for it. I'm here for it. We can touch on it. Let's right. touch on it. No, somebody, you know, I don't believe there's no such thing as a privilege, you know? <laughs> so, I have to approach it, like, and I, I actually have had this happen plenty of times, right? What's, what, what do I do with it? I'm like, well, I have privilege, right? I do. I can code switch like a motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> you can like, pass now. <laughs> but that, that's the thing. Like, we were taught that it was not good to be able to pass, right? So I always own that I am who I am, but I present in the way that I need to for the situation I'm walking into. That is a skill I learned early on and that has served me well, mm -hmm. right? Being able to walk into a space and know, like, 
Example, father being a football coach, we traveled all over the state. Darianne, I'll never forget it. Those, those, there, the parents were all in fur coats and bullshit. I, we were kids. I don't think we were even in high school yet. We were kids, right? Muddy, gross, nasty. My mother is getting racial slurs thrown at her. The football players on the field were getting racial slurs thrown at them. What's my privilege in that? I don't have fucking privilege in that situation, but I do have the privilege of knowing that if I go into Darien, I'm going to be walking into a bunch of racist people possibly. Mm-hmm. And knowing that I, that's a place where I got to mind my business because they'll call a cop on me for fucking looking at them wrong. Right. And that's something I learned in childhood. Now, could it be the same today? Probably. Is it? I don't know. But is that what my gut's going to tell me if I go into Darien, Connecticut anytime in this lifetime? Yes. Why? Because I learned it that way. That's how I learned that. Yeah. My safety matters more. <laughs> yeah. And that's part of privilege. I mean, if you don't have to feel or think like that, you probably have some privilege. I mean, I know a lot of the people that don't, like, yeah, they'll say that they get harassed when they go into the hood, their white kid in the hood. I mean, it's, a, you know, your environment, but you don't get harassed by going into the store or doing a simple thing. Like, it's the one thing if you're in an erroneous environment and around erroneous people, you get what you get. But if you're just going to the simple fact of a store or a gas station and there's fear in your mind or in your gut or you have to have, you know, that's, that's kind of a sign that, you know, maybe there's no privilege going on there, you know. But, you know, you, again, you know, for some people, Santa is still real out there. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, it's, and, you know, it's an adverse effect, you know, because me being a black man who dates a white woman, you know, Going into certain places or certain neighborhoods, you know, that are, I don't know, for lack of a better term, uh, melanin impaired, you know, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just, you know, the looks we get, the looks I get, because, you know, I am a dark skinned black guy. I'm a big dark skinned black guy. You know, the, the, the fact that people are afraid of me, you know, the clutch in their purses, the walking on the other side of the street, the, the, the side eye, you know, the comments under their breath, they don't think I hear, but they say it loud enough so that I do hear it and know my place as it were, you know, it's, you know, it's, and you know, it's easy to dismiss that when you don't have to deal with it. You know, I have this sick thought in my head every day that I feel my brother's going to be okay out there because he walks around with a white girl. How sick is that? Because if you were with another black woman going to some of the places that you'd be going, the, <laughs> the way that you'd be treated, the attitude, the looks, I can only imagine. At least you walk into a place, people are looking at you, the white girl comes in, it kind of tones them down. You see them edge back a little bit because you have a chaperone. And it's a sick feeling for me to feel that you're okay out there because you have that. You shouldn't need a chaperone. You're Absolutely not. You know, your grown-ass man that should be able to be respected no matter what room he walks in, as long as he's giving that respect. And the only way that sometimes you get respect is simply by the company you keep. Oh, it makes me sick to think about, but it makes me able to sleep at night knowing that at least you have that going. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. You know, because general respect is gender and color-based. Let's just be honest about that. Oh, you know, there's it's class too. There, like, there's oh. a bunch of shit there. Oh, oh, yeah. You know, like, that's not... Like, there's a whole bunch of shit there. And I, like, I'm hearing you say that you feel safe. And I'm like, no, nah, that's not safe. It's there's a false, safe it's a false sense of security. It's a yeah, false like, sense of security at best. Right? 
but the the fact that you think that that's safer as someone who loves Ron, right? Like we're family, but at the end of the day, that's what we have to tell ourselves to make sure that our brothers and sisters, at least in our minds, they're safe when they're out there. When that's not the reality. I know it's reality is that none of us are safe at any given moment. Legit, not one of us. Like we, like we drive to Myrtle Beach, you know every year for the family vacation for my girlfriend's family. And, you know, there's certain parts of the South that I absolutely refuse to drive through. Like, cause sometimes we have to take back roads through, you know, Virginia and North Carolina and South Carolina. I'm like, nah, I'm not driving through this because that's the last thing I need because, you know, they see me in a car with a white woman and two white kids. They're just like, what are you holding these, this family hostage? Like, I don't need that shit in my life, you know? And that's, and that's sick in my head that I think that, and I have to think that, because, like you said, Meg, my safety comes first. Yep. You know, and, and, and you know the fact that there's this preconceived notion that you know you can't be a black man anywhere driving a car with white people in it, or you can't be a black man anywhere in this country. Period. Except for the projects, except for the hood, because that's where you're accepted. That's your place. That's where you're supposed to be. When you're when you're, when you're someplace else that's not there, you're out of pocket. Absolutely. You know, and that's how is that even right? You know, it's not. It's not it, at all. Not even close to that's it. That's the thing. It becomes right when people who know better don't do better and say something about it, right? Like, I have spent plenty of time over the last few years with people who I'm like, I don't know if this person understands what I'm sitting through right now, right? You, you talk about driving through Virginia and South Carolina and all that shit. I used to drive big trucks. I've been through all these places plenty of time. But I had never, up until last year, there's this one spot down in um, Georgia, South Carolina area, right? I had driven through it a million times in the big truck. I had never stopped there. We stopped there on the way down south for Christmas because I wanted to see a haunted hotel because I, I, I thought it was cool. Yeah, um, absolutely. It was a little bit of a bait and switch. It wasn't what I expected. But we went, we went out in this little college town, right? Person with me, big, tall, white guy. Cool, like totally understands like that he's white and I'm black. Like there's no misconceptions about the, that that's a thing. Right. But at the same time, he doesn't understand that when I'm walking around the room, the bar we're in, I'm looking for black people. I'm looking for safety. I'm looking to figure out where the exits are. Yeah. <laughs> listen, listen, every time. And you know, my girlfriend next, she makes fun of me for it, but she understands it. Every time we go someplace, like we go to a restaurant, I have to sit with my back to a wall, not toward people. I won't do it. I absolutely refuse. It's like go, go 13. Don't walk behind me. You know what I'm saying? Like, no, I need to sit with my back to something. So I know no one can sneak up on me from behind and I can see the room in its entire view to make sure that if, and when shit does go sideways, I have a clear cut plan to get me and mine's out of there, Mm -hmm. you know? And, And do you think your Caucasian friends in that same room have had that thought? When they walk in the room? Not for the same Listen, reason. listen. When they go into a trap house to buy drugs, sure. Yeah, they have that thought. <laughs> but outside of that, fuck no. <laughs> fuck no. But yet there's no privilege to be had out there, my man. Listen, some people will tell you there is. Some people will tell you Wait. there isn't. When you fear for your life everywhere you go, whether it's, you know, a little bit of fear or a whole lot of fear, fear is fear regardless of the magnitude. Yeah. You know, and that's something that white people don't have to experience. And like touching on what Chad said earlier, that's why black people in the projects and white people in the reservations. I mean, uh, Indians or Native Americans in the reservations, because the powers that be, correction, the white powers that be, 
that are in command like to keep their dirty little mistakes out of sight. And it's out of sight, out of mind. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying they don't want to. They don't want to be reminded of how they did Native Americans dirty. But it's more than that. Why yeah. don't they want that? Why don't they want that? Right? Because they're like, trying to I preserve the their legacy. They're trying to but, preserve but their it's legacy. It's bigger than that, right? How are they preserving their legacy by keeping us all separated? How are they preserving their legacy by keeping us down and not aware of each other's struggle being the same? Because divide because and conquer. Because exactly. divide and conquer. Exactly, right? So think about think about the reservation land, right? They have land. It's not always the best. It's usually the fucking worst of the worst, right? Yeah. You have uh, Ford dumped a whole bunch of paint up at, like, was it New Jersey, New York? There was, like, this was in the 80s. They gave them some money. They hushed them up. They moved on with their lives. But when you look at what those folks have, they have land. We have farmers. You have farmers and people who can learn how to do that and do for themselves, right? Take the capitalist bullshit out of it. How do we feed ourselves so that we can make it through this shit without asking the government for shit? We grow shit. We learn how to grow shit. We learn how to build shit. We take over what we can control, right? The revolution does not happen because we sit here and talk about it. It happens because we plan it and then execute it. And what does that look like? It looks like being able to feed ourselves first, right? Because one of the reasons that people aren't doing what they need to do to take care of themselves and to stay safe in COVID, despite the fact that black and brown people are exponentially dying because of this, Mm-hmm is because they don't have enough food if yeah. they don't work. They don't have a roof over their head if they don't work, right? So where do you get a roof over their head? Either you commandeer it from the fucking millions of places that are empty right now. Yep. Or you find land of your own and you build it yourself. Those options exist, but you have to be able to do the work and willing to do the work to get there, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if people want to farm, teach them how to farm. You can farm on your roof. You can farm in your yard. You can farm in your backyard. You can farm on your porch. You can farm at somebody else's house if you don't have the land. How do you do that? You co-op it. How do you do that? You ask, hey, neighbors, I want to I be able to grow food sustainably so I don't have to spend 50 bucks a week on vegetables. How do I do that? Yep. Me? I, I order a butcher box, right? I live by myself. I'm one person. If I had three other people in my building who wanted to go in on that, Shit, that saves me some money and make sure I don't waste food. I put it in the freezer right now. Am I willing to do a little bit more to make sure that somebody down the street gets food in their belly? Yeah. Yeah, I am. <laughs> Fuck yeah. You know, and, and it's that sense of community that's lacking. Absolutely. They have been keeping us divided for far too long that we could become uncomfortable with even our own selves, like with wanting to... Look at where it's not, though. Look at where it's not lacking and build out from there. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We have to look at where it's working and then see what they need to support, right? What can I do to support Black Lives Matter New Haven? I can throw them some money when I can, right? Why? Because I know that that money, as soon as they got all those donations months and months ago, and it went right back into the community. So I know that if I put a little bit of money in that, they're going to make sure that people get fed. They're going to make sure that people get clothes. They're going to make sure kids get backpacks, right? Now, is every Black Lives Matter across the country doing the same thing? Not exactly, no, because they're independent organizations. Yep. But it's the people that run them that I trust. And I know. They know the needs of their community. They've done the groundwork. All I need to do in that situation is do as much as I can to make sure they're able to carry out the work that they're doing because it's good fucking work. 
And that's one of the, I think one of the big, bigger benefits that has come out of the Black Matter movement is that there's now more groups that are working towards the communities more than ever. I mean, there was always community centers, there was always community, you know, people within the community working towards the things, but now it's a lot more organized and it's a lot more networked where it never was before. So I think it's one of the greater things to come out of the movement for sure. Yeah, but what about those that say Black Lives Matter is a racist organization? It's it's funded by the blue. None of the money's going to actual communities. It's supporting insert candidate here's campaign. That sounds no. like racist reflecting to me. No, listen, you're not wrong. I'm just playing devil's advocate. You know what I'm saying? Since, since we lost Chad, I got to do that, you know, <laughs> as, as, as being the host, you know, because, you know, you guys see the inflammatory shit I post online all the time. I ask questions. I make declarative statements to get people talking and thinking and engaged. And Meg, you're always on every single of my posts, as are you, D, every single time without <laughs> fail. And you see the myriad of shit that white people say to disparage and discredit black lives, whether it's Black Lives Matter or black lives in general. You know, we could, we could all pull together and have a sense of community all we want to because there was that group of 19 people down in Georgia who bought that plot of land to make their own town, you know, which is some impressive shit. Yeah. But the question is, how will the federal government recognize them as a town? Will they need to pay taxes? Is the federal government going to come in and use eminent domain and seize that land at any given time? Those are right here, right here. Stop right there. Right. Just with what we're talking about. Who doesn't have to worry about the federal government? <laughs> Very true. Do our Native American brothers and sisters need to worry about the federal government? No. Fuck yes, they do. Are they? Listen to me, right? <laughs> listen to me, right? Yeah. Their land, we could easily say, this is what we're willing to contribute. People power, support in building anything you want to build, Right. Maybe they don't want to take it. Maybe they don't trust us. Maybe we got to build those relationships before that's a real possibility. But at the end of the day, if that's what you're worried about, if those are barriers, what's the workaround? Well, the workaround is Native Americans have that land. It's treaty land. If we support them, their liberation is my liberation. My liberation is their yep. liberation. So if I'm looking at the big picture, the big crazy, how do we actually fucking do this crazy shit, Megan, picture? I'm looking at who, do, who are my allies in this? What do they have at stake? And why might they give a shit about helping me to prevent those concerns from becoming my whole town just got burned down because we're black people and we bought land? Well, you know, the glaring example of, you know, contradictory you saying who needs, who needs to worry about the federal government? The Lakota Sioux tribe had to. You remember what happened during that fucking pipeline incident? They were spraying these people with hoses, sicking German shepherds on them, pouring oil on them. And this was, what, two years ago? On Native American land? Stuff that was done by the federal government or but agents of the federal government? Like, Look at the attention it got, right? Look at the attention it got. Imagine the attention it could have gotten if you have Black Lives Matter, police brutality groups, all these other groups saying, no, we stand in solidarity with these people. Yeah. Solid solidarity statements and solidarity actions that's direct action gets the goods right so if you have great we had a whole bunch of people and i i have people i know who were out there right i was invited i had just started my job i was like i can't take that kind of time off yet i wish i could right 
But like at the end of the day, if we were all actually working in solidarity with each other because we knew our liberation was tied to each other's, then the whole fucking game changes. Absolutely. Because the whole game, because the laws and the legal shit, they got to have our back. And if they don't, we vote them out. That's where that vote comes back, right? It comes back around when you're actually holding them accountable. You have to exercise it first. Then you have to protest and show them that you're not just willing to exercise it. You're willing to do something about the fucking things you said you cared about in the first place, which they clearly are not. Right. So then from there, if they don't listen, I'm all for it. Listen, I, I am, I am an advocate of the guillotine. Right. I am a head advocate of the guillotine. I've been saying bring back capital punishment for years. Clear, direct, and fuck you. This is not happening again in my country. Right. That's how clear it needs to be from my perspective for us to move forward from the shit that we were we we were dealt in this country. This country was built on the backs of slaves, and we still insist that that's not the case. That's not really a thing. It's only 400 years. We weren't there when it happened. It's in everything. It's built into everything. That's like baking a pie with fucking weed and not saying, hey, there's weed in all of it. No, there's no weed in this piece. I swear it's, it's the better piece. Like, <laughs> no, it's not possible. You're fucking full of shit. Let me eat it anyways. Why am I high? And going back again to my earlier comment about what rights are we talking about? Rights that were written by slave owners and white men, middle-aged men at that, you know? So I think it could be time that we do rewrite some things, that we relook at some things and rehash them out because our history has done, been though. It'll Listen, it'll never get done as long as there's no diversity in our leadership because further episodes of this podcast will address diversity in leadership, whether it's your federal government, state government, local government, fuck, for Christ's sakes, even your job, how much diversity is in the leadership there. And then, you know, going forward, we can't get any change until blacks, Latins, Muslims, women, the LGBTIA community come together like a closed fucking fist and realize that we're the majority and fucking lay the hammer down on this shit and get some real change. Like I said... Think about who are who we're working with. Listen, white men have perfected the ability to suppress us. How else do you think they would have hot, like a hundred individuals on a boat and still three people able to control them all? Think about that. You would have a hundred people in any given situation, plantations of 500 people, no more than 10 people. How do 10 people suppress literally hundreds of people? They got this shit down to a science. And, it's, and, and it goes back. just laid out the map. I just laid out the map and the science for you, right? Fear, utility, division, and confusion. That's how you do that, right? The same way a psychopath who kills, like, like, collecting girls to kill them. That's the same fucking mentality, right? Absolutely. The way you overcome that is not, like, it's point blank. Recognizing that you have more power in numbers, right? If I go by myself and I say, fuck this shit, I don't want this to be the way that it is, and I want the whole fucking thing to be revamped. Bye, Megan, brave but stupid. Like, that's what happens. But if 100 of us do it, okay, like, maybe we'll take a meeting next week. See you later. Bye, right? If 100 people march on on any government office and say, we want to change this. Hamden, Connecticut is a perfect example. You had hundreds of people coming out to protest over the uh, Stephanie and Paul, right? Shot, gunned down for no fucking reason better than, than somebody, like, 
Wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. Do the math. Rewind and tell the whole story for the people who don't know that story because I know it. So, so these, the Hampton <laughs> police are known for crossing the lines. New Haven, Hampton, and Yale police, all police in the same general area because there's a, an intersection of, of communities there. That thin right? blue line. Wow. New Hallville, I believe, it's, it's extremely over-policed, right? So you have that going on. You had a report made that a vehicle had, like, they had stolen or robbed um, a convenience store, that they were at the gas station. My understanding is that they walked in, they were aggravated, something happened, whatever, some kind of an interchange, nothing actually bad happened. And that what ended up happening is the guy calls the police, they say a whole story that's not really true, and then a couple hours later, you've got these two kids getting shot in a car because police officers just didn't bother to give a fuck about whether or not he had the right people, whether or not there was anything that could have harmed anyone in the car. Like, they're two teenagers making out in a car, basically, at that point. Yeah, because weaponizing the police isn't real. But there's, oh, that, that whole situation, there's so much more, like, that's the tip of the fucked up iceberg with that shit. Because those people, that police department, they, the whole, like, the whole city, like, the city government didn't know didn't understand why like why these people had so much power why they couldn't do anything about these police officers well it comes back to the police contract which is the creme de la creme of fucking police contracts yeah they don't bargain their contract still for another couple like i think it's six years six years that's unheard of that shit is unheard of the reason that people don't bargain unions do do not let contracts go that long unless they have everything they want yeah, that's ridiculous. The police department goes back and says to the like t- to these people whenever they want something, when the city wants something, when the city needs more money or needs to stop give like hemorrhaging money for police overtime to the police department that is paid 40 to 60 grand more than most starting police salaries in the state of Connecticut. Yeah. They get paid that much more to start without proper training. Because of that police contract, and then the city wants to know, well, why do we have to pay so much overtime? We need to pay you overtime to be at these events and do all these things in the city. But what are you? What are we getting for this? Yeah, well, that's just the way it is. That that like, and the, the literally the electedly alderman in the city of Hamden did not know that the police contract was was written to prevent them from being disciplined. It is the like. For any other type of worker in the fucking free world, we would be like, fuck yeah, that's what we want. For police, though? Are you shitting me? There is no discipline process in the Hamden police contract in that city. That man was able to shoot down two teenagers in a car and not have any accountability for it. Yeah. None. You know what the accountability measure is if someone has a complaint in the city of Hamden, Connecticut against the police? If they have to walk it into the police department, first of all, so there's intim- that's intimidating. You have to walk it into the police department. Then from there, it doesn't get reviewed, and it's in the contract, in the publicly available police contract for that city. It says that it doesn't have to be, nothing has to be done with it. A supervisor looks at it. Somebody decides. They have 30 to, 30 to 60 days to decide whether it's a, val- like a, a reasonable, like, a, a, like it's an actual complaint that should be filed. And yep. if, it, if they decide it doesn't, it goes in the wastebasket. So there's no actual just cause in a situation where nobody is tracking the things you need to track to fire an officer, just like you would fire a customer service worker who's not doing their fucking job. 
Yeah, it pays the way for abusive power. Just, just cause is a very easy clause to look at. But when you prevent just cause from being established, you've prevented your workers from being fired. Yeah. And that's a bad boss who didn't bother to fucking learn what was being put in that contract. That's not any other union in the world, anybody bargaining that contract for workers, taking out that it's police officers. You want stuff like that. Nobody in the fucking world is going to give it to you. Not for your police officers. It should not be like that. Oh, and of course it shouldn't. And the reason it got by is because it's the police officers, because there are generations in that police department, generations yeah. of police officers who live outside of the city, who live all over the state of Connecticut. Generations this is passed down to. Do you think it's going to be easy to find a whistleblower in the middle of a police department like that, where they get paid 80 to 100 grand out of the gate? Fuck! Oh, baby. <laughs> no. Nope. Like, so, well, the, the shooting of Stephanie and Paul is what brought my attention to that, right? Because that's how I found out about people like Carrie Ellington. That's how I found out about people like um, Orisha, right? These are people who I had seen in different places. But at this point, now I know what they're capable of. I've seen those women shut down meetings, shut down rooms, shut down shit. Why? Because justice matters more than continuing with the status quo. Agreed. Absolutely. <laughs> Fucking A right it does. But that Hamden situation, that's continuing. That goes on. And that's one that's city out of how many. Because of that shit. Yep. And that's only one city in the U.S. Like, I'm sure other cities have similar, if not worse, policies in place, depending Rich on what? Like, oh. Listen. And, and Listen, their police chief just got indicted by the feds for, you know, falsifying his test results to, you know, get that job as chief. So, I mean, like, we could take Bridgeport out of the equation because at one point I was going to have the chief on the podcast when we were talking about police brutality, and that went out the window with that whole indictment bullshit. He lost his credibility. Bye. He didn't have any credibility in the first place. Well, true, but, I mean, like, police chief of the state. He arrested a journalist last year. Fuck that. Yeah, I mean. Fuck that and then pretended they didn't know oh we Ew. didn't know <laughs> fuck you you didn't know i'm sorry i was out there till i was out there with the rest of them till six o'clock in the morning waiting for the last of them to get out they didn't have charges they arrested them why for protesting the death of jason negron mm. exercising their right and for those who don't know tell that story please because i, I remember that. that story as well but what i know is that an officer chased down a teenager for stealing a car and it cost that child his life. Got him in the back at that. Yep. His life. And that officer, James Bullet, he's like, he's got charges. He's got all sorts of other shit in his fucking police record, his work record. He's still getting paid. That man is still getting paid. Dude, and it's insane how long it takes them to even bring them to justice when it's clear that there is a misconduct that occurs. But like, that's the thing. Justice is never going to be set up for those folks. Those folks are set up. Like, police are literally derived from slave catching. You don't get rid of systemic racism in a system that is based on racism. Yep. Not yep. just racism, based on oppression of black people, of literally hunting, killing, or returning to their owner black people. An institution that is built off of that is never, ever going to be for my life. I agree. Thousand percent. Mm -hmm. Thousand percent. Mm -hmm. Wow. 
I, I must say, this has been a hell of a first episode, ladies. <laughs> Holy shit. Like, I, I don't know if this is too real and too honest, you know, for people, but they're goddamn it, they're going to hear it because these are these are the thoughts of the people who are really in the shit, who really live this, who really deal with it, who are really afraid. You know, some people don't want to talk about it. Tough titty. You know, some people aren't going to like this podcast because of how raw and real it is. Fuck yourself. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my stance on it. Because, you know, because you know what? Y'all been paying us that same kindness for hundreds of years. So, you know, turn about is fair play. Eat a dick. We here. We yeah. here. We here. We talking about yeah. it. You don't want to listen. That's fine. But I'm sure someone close to you is going to listen and spit this same knowledge we're spitting to you. You know, I mean, we, yeah, well, we could only hope, you know, and, and I hope this, this platform is a catalyst for change. That's what I want it to be. I want all of us who are in the trenches to come together, talk about these hard things and not only complain about them, speak on them, motherfuck them, but actually come up with ways to change it. You know, have, have honest discussions about why the system is broken and how to fix it. And, you know, I'm in the IT field and we deal with what's known as RCA, which is root cause analysis, you know, and I see the problem with systemic racism, the root cause, you know, this is going to be unpopular hot take of, I don't know, the past 150 years, maybe longer, but it's old, rich, white men. That's the problem. Notice I didn't say women because old, rich, white men, like their hierarchy must be like women, dogs, niggers, spicks, Asians, Muslims, immigrants, like nah. Oh, and the gays somewhere in there too. But like, nah, that's, that's the poison pill. That's who we need to focus our attention on. And that's who we need to remove from power. Like, to put it in perspective, Donald Trump and Joe Biden are pretty much the same age. They're in their mid-70s. Why the fuck are these old codgers even vying for power of a nation that's so forward-thinking, so on the cusp of greatness? Like, Trump says, make America great again. When was it great? As a, as a person of color in this country, when was America great? I know my mother wasn't born into it. <laughs> that, uh, you ain't never lied about that. Like, when, when was this country great? For, for people of color. For what demographic you were lucky to be born in. Yeah. When was America great for America's marginalized people? When was America great for us? You know, people don't think outside of the lens that they are, are given or that they are willing to pick up, right? When I talk to friends of mine about why it's so important. Now, I'm a socialist. I wanted Bernie. I wanted Bernie all the way. I do not believe that... Kamala Harris and Joe Biden represent me in any meaningful way. Absolutely. What not. it is for me, though, as an organizer, as someone who has community, who knows that there are people in Portland and Ohio and New York and all over this country that are getting picked up in unmarked vehicles that may or may not be militia or police, we don't know. Mm -hmm. Right. When I think about where we're headed as a country, like I look at that and I think I can vote for Biden and potentially be at least safe in protesting this oppression, or I can let it play out the way it's going to play out and either hide in my home like some folks are going to do, 
or I'm going to be out on the street and people are going to die and I could be one of them. That's real for me. Yeah. It's real right? for all of it's us. Just, but, but that's the thing. It's just as real every day when we leave our houses, which is what makes it a harder decision to decide, okay, am I going to be out there in the streets today or am I going to stay home and do the work from home today? Right. Because when I go out there to be in the streets, I want to be as safe as possible. Right now, that's not easy with what, I, you know, I laid out before for you what my challenges are as a black woman and someone with pre-existing condition. Right. So, like, I look at that and I'm like, where do I where am I best served? Right. But there are days I will tell you, I went to Baltimore the day after everything happened with Breonna Taylor. Like that. I needed to be out in the street. I needed yeah, to yell. Yeah. I needed to feel that. Right. Now, I don't I had one person, one friend that was with me. I met up with her. We went out there. I was with a whole bunch of strangers. I never felt so whole in a moment of grief as I did yelling in the streets in front of the Baltimore PD. Right? Yeah, That's right. not the same police department that did the things, but they done plenty of dirt themselves. <sighs> so when, when we think about this stuff, I think about, just like I, I was saying before, going back to safety, right? Voting for Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris at this point, that's my safety I'm voting for. I'm also uniquely aware of the fact that this is not going to be a, you find out on the fourth who won the vote and everything transitions easily. No, we're going to have to be in the streets in the middle of a fucking pandemic. Yeah. Why? Because if that doesn't transition peacefully, then what happens next is we all get locked into our houses at some point because, or we all die at an exponential rate that we've already been dying at an exponential rate. Yeah. So what's at risk here, whether you vote, whether you don't, like, if you're not voting, you're voting for me to be put in a, in a position of, of potentially dying in the streets for you because you didn't want to bother to get off your ass and vote the first step of the revolution. Like, yeah. Listen, there's a reason why they say vote or die, right? You know, and it's some people make light of that phrase, but it's real shit because for us people of color, us disenfranchised and marginalized people, we're literally voting for our lives. You know, yeah. I'm going to be 40 next year too. And you know, for the first time in my adult life, you know, <laughs> yeah. Now we seasoned, we ain't old, we seasoned, <laughs> but, yeah. but you know, for the first time in my adult life and you know, I didn't put any stock in voting because you know, one, I was a, I'm a convicted felon, which, you know, I can vote. So let's dispel that myth. Now convicted felons can vote depending on the felony. All right, and the so, state and where yeah, you're at. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So I needed the, you know, when when it was the vote for Obama, you know, versus Bush, I had to get in that election. I had to get up in there. I had to I had to make my feelings known. Not like Bush was a bad president. I mean, especially by today's standards. You know, I would give anything to have George W. Bush back in office. Listen, listen. I know, I know. But I would give anything to have George W. Bush back in office. You know, instead of this fucking this gentleman we have now, I won't say anything disparaging about him yet, but fuck Trump. <laughs> but, you know, I felt then, you know, as a black man in this country, I needed to vote because we needed change. We needed different because again, old rich white men aren't getting the job done for us. They don't represent us. Like Congress and Senate don't represent us. There's not enough. There's not enough Muslim black women, you know, LGBTIA, you know, Hispanic in Congress and Senate. It doesn't represent my interest, you know, and that's, and that's a big problem. You know, again, diversity and leadership, you know, 
just so y'all know to look out for that, you know, that's episode five. So we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But diversity and leadership, that's a huge problem in this country and it needs to Absolutely. be addressed. And, you know, voting is the start of that. But also at the same time, where are all the candidates that represent those marginalized groups? They're you. They're oh, the guy I'm, next to you. They're like, they're like, it's not, it's not me. That's not who I am. That's not who I want to be. I've had people ask, well, why don't you do that? And I'm like, because I want to organize. That's where I've, I feel most useful. Right. But there is someone somewhere who has the same ideals as me who should be in that position. Right. When it comes to Connecticut, there's folks that I like, if there's, there's one person we went to high school with who like, I have told, and I won't, I don't want to blow up his spot or nothing, but like, I've told him if you ever wanted to run in, in Stratford, I would, I would come and run your campaign. Why? Because I know he has the same values I have. I know he understands that sometimes you got to step back and listen. And I know he understands that there are people there that know the history of that city in a way that he doesn't, right? But he's willing to do some, something to make it better for the future, right? So I know that I would go back and work on that campaign in a heartbeat. The same goes for plenty of other people I've met. Yeah. Because you know, we... We need the change and we need more. We need more people that look like us in power. That's the only way we'll really get change. To have it more people. From where we come from. Not even just look. That, yeah, it's not just that. Because, yeah. yeah. Exactly. The thing with their police is what, how are we going to have Fairfield cops taking care of Bridgeport business? How does that even feel, let alone look? Like we need more of our demographic, not just the way we look, where we came from, grew from what we had to grow out of. Because you can get yourself a nice, rich, cleaned up black person in office, ain't gonna represent us still, you know what I mean? Just because they look the part doesn't mean they're gonna feel the part. And that's where it's more important, I think. Not so much the look, but where, where did you come from? Exactly, you know? see what I see, feel what I feel. Yeah, and especially no. with their police departments, if we kept them all homegrown, we wouldn't have, because those are people working within their own communities, within their own people. They're not going to be strangers in the party. And if that's why I'm, have, yeah. yeah, and that's why I'm a big proponent of if you want to apply to be a cop, you need to do it in your own city and not just, you know, a city that's paying more. I get it. you got to make power moves for you and yours and make sure your people straight. But, you know, if you if you really want to be a cop that bad, do it in your own community. But that's an individual choice. But when you have a institution of power, they need to have the logical thought that we need to be hiring within our ranks, within the community. It just makes sense. Yes. Yes. The community polices itself, in essence. None of it makes sense because we don't police. <laughs> well, you, you know, you know we, we do, just not the kind of police we have in this country. Because if you look in other countries, other nations that are way older than us, that their cops don't even carry firearms. They're trained in de-escalation. You know what I'm saying? Like, you go to the UK, none of their, none of their patrol cops have guns. They have batons and maybe a taser. They, the only time they got to bring out the guns, they got to call the SWAT for that. You know? Dude, look, at, look at our war on drugs. <laughs> you want to so, talk about how they, they really disproportionately race oh, the war on drugs listen drugs are an international thing they're yeah. all around you don't see any other country with a war like we do you know and in considering in who it's really affecting who it's really locked that's, that's money up. yeah that's money honey it's a, oh, it's a, that's the beginning of correctional, what is it, um, in the, um, correctional institutions, privatized correctional institutions. Yep. 
you know, to make money. If you follow the money on on the prison to school to prison pipeline, right? You follow the money on what the, the drug war actually did, right? It put black people, black men in jail and women in jail. It made sure that the police had something to do, so it kept some of them employed, right? Yeah. Everybody's happy. They're making money. It works. The system works for us. Why does it work for us? Because we're getting paid. What do we give a fuck about what, who's getting hurt in this? Yeah, yeah. It's, the, it's the prison industrial complex. Been around since, you know, the... The 70s really got big in the 80s, you know, with Reaganomics and trickle-down economics, you know, the, the fake war on drugs when the CIA was, you know, loading heroin from poppy fields in Vietnam in the bodies of dead soldiers and bringing it back here to distribute to whoever to sell in black and brown communities in order to create inmates to put in these privatized prisons. And these think about it. Like, crim- that's where you win, though, right? That's where they, the oppressor wins. Because they managed to criminalize it. That's what turns black and brown people against other black and brown people. I'm not like that. I'm not that person. Yeah. I'm getting treated like this person, but I'm not that person. You made a mistake. Somebody made a mistake. Something happened. Okay. A kid stole a car. He lost his life. Why? Why did that happen? Why is that okay? Why is that acceptable? Yeah. Like, like, if somebody else is getting paid to do that work, and if we make it so that that work isn't real, which it's not, it is not real that someone needs to chase that kid into a different town. Why? you find that car later. Somebody will fucking turn off the license plate. That's, what, sh- that's what insurance for. is for. That's what insurance exactly. is for. Exactly. Listen, you don't even hear the term war on drugs anymore because now it's hit suburbia. Now it's a, it's a health crisis. Yeah, the, the opioid epidemic. Yeah, you can get the fuck on with that. How quick to change? We've had since the 80s a war on drugs. And in the last five years, it's an opiate crisis. Why is that? And how do we live in a society that we have black men that are serving 25 years for a dime bag, but you have white entrepreneurs in Colorado posting up shop like a fucking goddamn Walgreens? Like, let's yeah, we're not going to talk about all the scores of black and brown soldiers that came back from Vietnam addicted to heroin that the VA oh. did nothing about. Like, we're not going to talk about that because yeah. nobody wants to talk about that. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's a system where, and it's, a, it's still the same form of slavery. Absolutely. You know what it I'm saying? In, it keeps us in where they put us, pretty much. Exactly. It doesn't, make, yeah. it doesn't make us feel better to get out or to be better. But that, like, that's the thing. Like, we don't make ourselves feel like we. Th- it comes full circle, right? Yeah, always. We don't make ourselves feel better for getting out of the holes that we've been in, right? Like, we all grew up with the same people. Like, I think Ron, you're probably one of few black men who I've maintained a relationship with since I was what 14. Mm-hmm. Like, that's my reality as far as all of that shit is just like, yeah, like we we're people, but at the end of the day. It doesn't mean anything if we don't actually talk about this shit with people that aren't just our people. Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. Otherwise, we're going to keep getting dismissed the way that it always has been, and we're going to keep, keep normalizing it, and nothing's going to change. And you know what? Again, shameless plug. That's the point of this Two Steps Forward podcast, for the people who are affected by this to have a voice and to have a platform to get these thoughts and feelings and sentiments heard by people who aren't in our orbit, aren't in our circle, who don't know our struggle. You know, that's, that's why I wanted to do this because, you know, I, 
I've talked to many, many white people since, you know, all this stuff started popping off years ago, you know, when, you know, the first publicized one was Trayvon Martin, you know, that yeah. was the biggest high profile one, you know, you know, after Trayvon Martin, you know, Eric Garner, you know, and then it just kept going and going and going and going, you know, and seeing someone like Tamir Rice, an 11 year old boy with a water gun, get shot down in a in a playground by cops because he had a fucking water gun. He's 11 years old. Why are you yeah. pulling your guns on an 11 year old boy? You know, and again, not the, sure. not the you know, not to vilify police because they don't need any help in that department. But, you know, I was reading I was reading a story the other day about how this this white woman, her son was autistic and she's been working from home, you know, and she had to she got recalled back into her office and her son got acclimated to her presence home and he started acting out because she had to go to her office. So she came home from work one day and her son was, you know, acting out and she called the police and she said, I just need help getting him to a hospital. And, you know, the cops show up and they shoot this boy seven times. And he was 13. White boy. Let's keep, let's keep this a buck. It was a, white, it was a white mother and a white son. And my question is, where was the outrage from the white community for that? Let's yeah. talk about, let's talk about uh, I want to get the gentleman's name right, because this story put a hair across my ass. No, it's true. You know. Uh, that was definitely excessive. I remember that story. It was a child, though. We're talking about children, and this is and this is your first mode of um, of how to handle a situation. You're a police officer. You're put in a point of power to protect and serve. What happened to that? When we militarized police, we should have known that that was coming. And the person who put made the people who made the decision that we it was okay to start giving excess military equipment to police departments knew knew that that's what the fucking point was but the thing is if you're going to militarize the police then have them required to be in the military because i'll tell you that anyone that does their four years you learn respect of the gun you learn respect for your country and you learn basics because you learn that shit as a child you have to understand the military is only 2% of the American population. They're usually aged between 17 and 20 years old. They're young, they're impressionable, but they learn a damn thing. You can ask any veteran and they can be right, left, it doesn't matter, but they all have a respect for the weapon, a respect for the country and respect for serving the people because that's what they instill. So if you're gonna militarize the police, then fucking put them through the military to earn, to learn that concept, the honorability part. Because otherwise, you're just giving guns to children. <laughs> but you don't have to do that when you don't like the, the laws that are set up in place. And this, again, goes back to why we vote, why it matters to vote, why it matters to pay attention. Black people and brown people have traditionally been too poor to pay attention. I try to explain that to people all the fucking time. They do not understand. I work with people who are academics. I work with people, a handful that like came from places like we did, but not nearly as many. Right. Yep. So a lot of these people are like, well, why don't you know all this stuff? Like, and it's not like an accusatory thing. It's just, there's an assumption that because I work in the world I work in and I'm educated and smart that I would know all the politics and all that stuff. Do I know the names of all the politicians and the names of all the bills and all the things that go through? No, because I'm catching up from 30 something years of not knowing that shit. Yeah, mm -hmm. very true. That stuff, when you know that stuff, like just like I went into it with the police contract in, in, in Hampton, right? Those contracts, the way that those things are set up and done, 
if people just bothered to look at that, they could start to start to comprehend why defunding the police is the start to abolishing them, right? Because we're not going to abolish right away. As much as I want that to be how that works out, that's not how that works out. That's not reality. That's not the world we live in. But if you want to defund the police and fund the things that need to be funded for people to come up, you have to defund the police. You have to put that money back into schools. You have to put that money back into communities. You have to put that money into social services, right? So if you're doing that and you know what that looks like, then from there, you're able to start to build an actual accurate like system that works for the people because the people are involved in building it. Absolutely. Right? Like, it's people. It, oh, always, and it always will be. Always has been and always will be. Yeah. But we don't come together because it's too hard. And what's hard about it is that we're set up in a world to not talk to each other, to send a meme on Facebook, to send a text message, to have a quick conversation in passing, but to never have the hard conversation. Oh, the disconnection's real, for sure. Nope. Everything's very surface level these days. We don't ever really get deep, in de deep into the nitty gritty because it's uncomfortable. But once we become comfortable with being uncomfortable, that's where we're going to find our change. That's where growth comes yeah. from. Any of it. Any of it. You know, okay. Well, <laughs> I'd love to thank you ladies for being a part of history, something monumental. You know, I mean, we have a lot of good content here. You know, I'd love to thank, you know, my sister D Avian, my homie Meg, Chad for being a part of this. You know, it was a very, very good discussion. I had a lot of great points and, you know, hopefully people listen to this and they get something from it. They learn, you know, this is just the start. Two steps forward podcast. You know, we're here for y'all. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to the Two Steps Forward podcast. Our hope is that this podcast will serve as those first two steps toward change. Please feel free to share our podcast and leave a review on the platform you're streaming us on. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook at Two Steps Forward Podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode, White Privilege versus Black Supremacy. We can't have change until we take those first two steps forward.